It's time for the Appleseed Tellers and Stories, sometime just about every day, filled with stories for you and your family to enjoy. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's great to have you with us today. On today's episode, we're going to warm up for a couple of Christmas tales with a tale of summer by Catherine Conant. The story is called Doing the Dishes. So maybe that title is the holiday connection right there for anyone who spends the season throwing parties and cleaning up after them. Nevertheless, it's a story of summer and we'll take you back. After Catherine takes us back to the carefree days of summer, we launch into two Christmas tales. The first from a collection called Christmas at Grandma's. It's a story called The Children's Christmas Play by Donald Davis. And we'll follow that story up with a piece from Andy Offit Irwin, one of his stories about Aunt Marguerite, the fictional great aunt who at 80 years old went back to medical school and who forms the backbone of Andy's canon of original stories that he performs all over the country. That story is called The Glass Christmas, and we'll be happy to bring it to you. But we're going to start with this tale from Catherine Conant. Here's Doing the Dishes, recorded live at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. Here's Catherine. When the summer I was 11 years old, I ran all the time. I would get up in the morning, put on my shorts and my shirt and my kids, run downstairs to breakfast, eat something, and then run across the street to Janie Krebeck's house and we would run around the neighborhood and look for deposit bottles so we could run down to the prune shop and buy penny candy. We called it the prune shop because the woman who stood behind the double glass counters and sold candy all day had a face like a prune. (laughs) She did not like children. She did not like standing behind the counter while we went, uh, okay, okay. Uh, I want two Mary Jane and a bazoo... No, wait, wait. I want two lobster... No, mm, I'll take a... Kid, hurry up. I haven't got all day. But she did. That was her job, to stand there and sell candy to kids who couldn't make up their minds. Then, in the afternoon, I would run home for lunch, and then after that, I would go outside in the yard and teach my brothers how to drop kick a football over the house. They could not do it, but I could do it every time. And then I ran through the schoolyard, but you had to be fast because Janie's older brother, Alan, and Ronnie Smith were out there in their Schwinn Roadmaster bicycles, and if they saw you in the schoolyard, they would do their darndest to run you down but they never caught me. I was the fastest kid in the neighborhood. In the afternoon, I would run all the way down to the end of my street, Dublin Street, and I would sit on the storm sewer, and I would wait while the engineer would drive the boxcars back to the switching yard, and I would wave because I wanted him to think I was a good girl, but secretly, I had put pennies on the tracks to see if I could make it tip over. (laughs) Oddly, it never worked. And then I would run on home and we would have supper and after supper was my favorite time to run. And that is when the darkness started to fall and my father would stand out in the middle of Dublin Street with his wristwatch in his hand and he would clock me as I would run from the Michaleskis driveway all the way to the end of Dublin Street. I liked to run barefoot because I loved the way the warm tar felt under my feet. And when I would stretch my legs out as far as they could go 
and I ran past them, ran past him. I was a blur. And then I wasn't running on Dublin Street. I was running on a track, and people were cheering. The summer I was 12, my sister Maria got sick. And my mother said she'd have to spend a lot of time upstairs with her in her room. My brothers said, do not kick the football over the house because Ronnie said it was so easy only a, even a girl could do it. Janie said she didn't want to run around anymore and get deposit bottles because mostly she just wanted to sit around and watch Jimmy Michaleski play stickball. I didn't run in the schoolyard either and my mother said, young ladies did not sit on storm sewers and wave at engineers, thank you very much. And my father said, it was about time I started doing more chores. Chores like the dishes. Well, I hated the dishes. All my brothers had to do was take out the garbage, but I had dishes. There were six of us that sat down for dinner every night, plus the pots and pans, and I hated it. Usually Maria had done it, but now it was my job. We didn't use dishwashing liquid, and we certainly had never even heard about a dishwasher, so we used a powdered detergent called Does. I haven't met anybody who's heard of it, but it came out of someplace in Michigan, and the slogan was, Does does it. My mom used it for laundry. My dad used it to wash the white walls on the car. If I used too much in a bowl, it made my hands itch, made me sneeze. And here was the protocol. Wash, scrape, stack, wash, rinse. Rinse, dry, put away. Scrape, stack, wash, rinse, wash, dry, put away. Because the next night we were gonna sit down to dinner and then I was gonna stand up and scrape, stack, rinse, wash, rinse, dry, and put away. Because the next night my mother was gonna take those dishes out and fill them up with lasagna or sausage and peppers or manakat. And then I would scrape, stack, rinse, wash, rinse, dry, and put away. It never ended. The reason we bought Does detergent was not because it was good, but because it was cheap and because it came with a free dish in every box. Imagine that. Without even asking, they sent us a free dish every time we bought a box, although they were not very good about mixing up the sizes. So we had a big stack of saucers, not too many dinner plates, and not too many bowls. They were cheap, and they were ugly, and they just seemed to chip just looking at them. They just chipped. My dad said, we cannot keep anything in this house 20 minutes, you kids don't break it. But you just look at them and they just chip. They're just ugly. I'm pretty sure what, what residual dishes there are of that company and that pattern, you can find them in the kitchens of churches all over this country. That is where they are hiding. Well, right around that time, Bamberger's department store sent my mother a charge card without even asking. It just came in the mail, and suddenly my mother became a shopper. Usually when she went to the mall, she bought underwear, socks, towels. But one day, came home with a 72-piece set of dinnerware. Everything matched. There were no chips. 
We took it out of the boxes and spread it out on the table and it was like a little garden. Each piece had a little bouquet of pink and blue flowers with green leaves. They were so pretty. Well, the first thing I had to do is stack, wash, rinse, dry, and put away. But I didn't care because they just looked so beautiful in the cupboard. And when I was all done, my mother looked at that stack of ugly, dumb, mismatched chip dishes sitting on the counter. And she said, huh, I wonder what I should do with that. And I felt a squeezing in my chest. I could just throw them out the back door. What? I mean, I could just throw them out on the back door on the driveway. She looked at me for a long minute. My mother never wasted anything. She's one of those ladies who may have kept a box that said pieces of string too short to use. She was a lady of the depression. And she looked at that stack of ugly, chipped, mismatched dishes on the counter, and she looked at me and she said, promise me you'll clean up. I didn't give her a moment to think any further. I grabbed them, I carried them out to the back porch. There was the driveway and I picked up a cup and I I threw it and it landed, broke and rolled into the gutter. And then I picked up a saucer and I threw it as hard as I could and as it arced through the air, it sailed, it landed on the asphalt and it made a star of powder. And then I began throwing as fast and as hard as I could. And at that moment, my two brothers came up the driveway and said, you are going to get in so much trouble. And they looked over at the back door, and there was my mother just standing there watching. And then they said, can we do it? Can we do it? And she said, no. She has to wash them. She gets to break them. And I threw and through until my arm was tired and we were all out of dishes. And I swept them all up, got out a snow shovel, put put all the pieces in the garbage, got out the hose, hosed down the driveway so that by the time my father came home for dinner there was absolutely no indication anything had happened. And that evening when we sat down for dinner, it was lovely. All the dishes matched. There was a meal where my father took one look at it and he said, What? What's what's all this? And Mama said, Well, it was on sale. It was quite a bargain. Everybody knew my father would buy anything if he thought it was a bargain. And that dinner we had was lovely. Nobody spilled anything. Nobody broke anything. Nobody fussed about anything. We just had somehow reached another level of civilization. (laughs) And when it was all over, just as I was getting up, my father said, but wait, wait. What about those dishes? You know, they were still serviceable. And for a moment, nobody said a word. And then my mother said, I know And that is why I felt it was important to give them to someone who could really use them. (laughs) 
And I stood up and started to scrape, stack, rinse, wash, rinse, and dry one more time. Catherine Conant with Doing the Dishes, a story recorded live at uh, the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. Catherine Conant was a guest at the festival in 2017. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with Christmas tales from Donald Davis and Andy Offit Irwin here on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of the Appleseed Tellers and Stories. Before the break, you heard a summer tale by Catherine Conant. Just to take you back, just to take you back to the carefree, warm days of summer. The story was called Doing the Dishes. And up next, we've got a couple of Christmas stories. Here's the first one. It's from Donald Davis. It's from a collection called Christmas at Grandma's. And it's got the evocative title of the children's Christmas play. Perhaps that brings back memories for you like it does for me. Here's Donald Davis here on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories. The Children's Christmas Play When I was eight years old and my little brother was six years old, we went to church one year on the Sunday after Thanksgiving and they made a special announcement. This year, for the first time, we will have a children's Christmas play. All the children who would like to be in the play should come back at 4 o'clock this afternoon and begin to practice. That Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, every mother in town who wanted a little break decided her children were going to be in the Christmas play. There we were, all dumped out at church, little kids crawling on the floor, not old enough to walk, Big kids, 25, 30 years old, still living at home. Everybody dumped out for the Christmas play. In came Miss Yance. She was going to be in charge of things. We found out right off how bad this was going to be. First, she gave out the parts. Who wants to be Mary, she said. All the girls raised their hands. Who wants to be Joseph? All the boys raised their hands. So Miss Yance said, I'll just decide who'll be who. That's when we found out how little she knew about what she was doing. Because she picked a brother and sister to be Mary and Joseph. I thought this thing's going downhill fast if it's going to be like this all the way through. After that, all the girls got to be angels. Almost all the boys got to be shepherds. But I was pretty tall when I was eight years old, so I got to be a wise man. Somebody said, who gets to be the baby Jesus? That's when we found out how really bad this was going to be. Because Miss Yance said, the baby Jesus will be symbolized by a flashlight in the manger. I thought, what? that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. A little puppy could do better than that. Somebody's Betsy Wetsy dog could do better than that. This is going to be bad. Well, we started practicing and, and learning our songs. Everybody had to learn a little song to go with the part. 
They were going to clean out the front of the church, put in a manger, and put in palm trees made out of cut-out cardboard. We'd learn our songs, and then we'd march in singing in the right order, and that would be the children's Christmas play. The wise men had it pretty lucky. We got to sing about We Three Kings from Orient Are, and I already knew most of that song. My little brother had it bad. The shepherds had to learn some songs about watching sheep all night, and he didn't know a word of that. After we had practiced two or three weeks, one Sunday afternoon, Miss Yance said, Now, boys and girls, when you go home today, start getting your costumes together. When my brother and I heard that, we got home and had a two-hour skin-scratching, hair-pulling, nose-twisting, ear-biting fight over our daddy's bathrobe. My dumb little brother thought it was a shepherd's robe, and I knew it was a wise man's robe. Just before we tore in two down the middle, my mother got there, got a stop. She said, okay, okay, let him have it. Let it be a shepherd's robe. I've got a better one for a wise man. She put that bathrobe on my little brother, had to pin it up around the bottom because it was too long on him. He now looked like he was wearing two blue and white striped bath towels. She put another towel over his head, tied a string around it, threw the front part back and said, now you're a shepherd. He said, no, 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 I need a shepherd's crook. My daddy cut a limb off a maple tree, bent the end around, tied it with a string, told my little brother if he'd leave that string there long enough, it would stay like that when he took the string off. I don't know how many years that would have taken. My little brother was a little scared about being in that play to start with, and so to keep him from being so scared, my mother took his teddy bear and wrapped cotton around it so he could stick it under his arm and carry it along like it was a little lamb, kind of make him feel better along the way. After all that, she started turning me into a wise man. My mother went back in her closet and brought out this beautiful robe. I had never seen it before. It had little red and blue and purple paisley patterns on it, and if she had ever worn it, it would have been real short on her. I said, I've never seen that before. She said, I've been saving it. I don't know what she was saving it for. She put it on me, eight years old, as short as it would have been on her. It was just right on me. It was kind of loose, though, so she overlapped it in the front and took one of my daddy's big, wide neckties and made a sash out of it. After that, she made me a turban out of a white silk scarf, pinned a cameo brooch right up on my forehead, and now I was a wise man. My daddy said, looks like you're ready to go. I said, oh no, no, I'm not ready. I'm supposed to take a present for the baby flashlight. He said, what are you supposed to take? Well, I was kind of slow raising my hands, 
And when Miss Yance had said, who wants to bring the gold? I didn't know what she was talking about. And Michael Tuttle raised his hand. She said, who wants to bring the frankincense? I hadn't caught on yet. And Red McElroy raised his hand. And I got stuck with the myrrh. I said, I'm supposed to take something called the myrrh. What's that? My daddy said, ask your mother. She didn't know either. She said, well, what does the song say? I said, well, I sing something about myrrh is mine. It's bitter perfume. My mother said, what's the bitterest thing you ever tasted? Eight years old, I said, black coffee. My mother said, that'll do. You can take a little jar of black coffee. Nobody will know the difference. They don't use much myrrh around here. Then my daddy said, I've got something good he can take it in. He disappeared into the bedroom. I heard the lid squeak, squeak on the cedar chest. I could hear the water running in the bathroom. In a few minutes, he came out, and he had this beautiful cut glass bottle with a stopper in the top. He said, take it in this. This looks great. My mother said, you can't take that to church. That's a whiskey bottle. He said, oh, I washed it out since it had anything in it. So we filled up the whiskey bottle with black coffee, and that became the myrrh. Well, we practiced and practiced and practiced, got till we learned our song, practiced coming in and out till we had it all just right. And then finally, on the Sunday night before Christmas, the time came for the big children's Christmas play. We got all dressed at home. I put on my costume. Now, I didn't put my sandals on. It was too cold to wear them. I carried them in a little paper bag and wore my tennis shoes. I thought, now, I'll put my sandals on when we get up there to church. I did keep my blue jeans on underneath everything else. Because, see, that robe, it didn't come all the way to the ground. And I thought if somebody tries, they could look at my legs. And I couldn't stand that. We got in the car and started up to church. Everybody in town was going to be there. Oh, the whole parking lot was full already. The whole church was jammed full of people Everybody was there. We got all ready out of sight in the back. Everybody sang two or three songs, and then the lights kind of dimmed down, and spotlights came on, and the big children's play started. Mary and Joseph, brother and sister, stopped fighting for a few minutes and came out singing a little song about Mary laying her child in a manger, and Mary bent over and turned on the flashlight. After that, the angels started. They were in the back singing, Gloria, Gloria. Actually, the big angels were singing, 
Gloria, Gloria. The little tiny angels were singing, Mama, 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 and running around pulling their dresses up. And, and all the grandmothers were saying, Oh, look, look at mine. Isn't she cute? Isn't she cute? They herded all the angels up to the front, got them all in place, and it was time for the shepherds. Here came the shepherds with my little brother right in the middle, marching down the aisle, hitting their crooks on the floor a lot harder than Miss Yance would let them get away with hitting them during play practice. Back in the beginning, there had been some little tiny shepherds, not old enough to walk. Finally, Miss Yance had given up on them and just wrapped cotton all around them and let them be little sheep and crawl down through there. They were going, wah, wah, wah. All their mothers were so proud. They were saying, oh, look at mine, look at mine. Listen, he learned his part. He learned his part. Wah. They got all the shepherds hurried up to the front, got them all in place, and finally it was time for the wise men. The three of us got in a row side by side. The introduction to the music started. We were supposed to march down the aisle side by side on the first verse. Then we'd turn around, and each one of us had a solo. All of a sudden, Miss Yance put her hand on my shoulder and said, Honey? When she said that, she was getting ready to tell you to do something you weren't going to want to do. Honey, you've got your blue jeans on. I thought, of course I do. I don't want anybody looking at my legs. She said, you can't wear your blue jeans. Come on, slip them up. I didn't want to, but she had me cornered. And besides, the music was starting. I thought, I'm going to practice all this time and then miss the whole thing fighting over blue jeans. She got the blue jeans off, tied the necktie back around my waist, pushed me back up into line, and here we went down the aisle. We three kings of Orient are. That was always the scariest part of that song. Because when we were practicing, Red McElroy would always sing, We three kings of Orient are trying to smoke a loaded cigar. Boom! And he had told everybody he was going to do it like that that night and mess the whole thing up. We got through that part. Red did it the right way. We got down to the front at the end of that verse, turned around, and everything settled down. Michael Tuttle stepped out, held up a brick that his mother had spray-painted gold, sang about the gold, and gave the brick to the baby flashlight. Red stood up. He had a little perfume bottle full of green water. He sang about the frankincense and turned it in. And then it was time for the myrrh. I stood up held up the whiskey bottle full of black coffee and began to sing. Myrrh is mine, 
its bitter perfume. And down on the front row, some dumb, stupid, little no-neck kids started giggling. I thought, stupid, stupid, stupid little kids, they don't know this song is serious. I better sing louder. So I got a big breath and, and kept right on. Breathes a life of gathering gloom. And on back through the audience, even bigger kids were giggling. And I sang louder about sighing and breathing and dying. And even grown-up people were giggling. And with my biggest breath, I finished off sealed in a stone-cold tomb, and the whole place was going, ah, ah, ah. And about that time, I looked back up the aisle, and about halfway back there on the floor, I saw one of my daddy's neckties. And about the same time, I felt the breeze. And I looked down, and they were looking at more than my legs. Well, I dropped the myrrh, ran for the back door, knocked over the manger, baby flashlight went ka-flop, 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 ka-flop out on the floor. I went out the back door, wouldn't come back in, it tore the whole place up so badly, they had to go down the street, get Santa Claus, bring him in to settle things down again. And he wasn't even in that play. Well, the next year, on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, they made another announcement. This year, the adult choir will sing. No more children's Christmas play. And for a long time after that, every time we went to church, I hated to sit down near the front because there was a big myrrh stain on the carpet down there. Donald Davis with the children's Christmas play. I'm going to take a short break and then we'll be right back with a story from Andy Offutt Irwin here on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed Tellers and Stories. Before the break, you heard the children's Christmas play from Donald Davis. And up next, a story called The Glass Christmas by Andy Offutt Irwin. This is one of his Aunt Marguerite stories. Aunt Marguerite, of course, the fictional great aunt who at 80 years old goes back to medical school. She forms the backbone of Andy's canon of original stories, stories that he performs all over the country. This is a Christmas Aunt Marguerite story that may resonate with you for a lot of reasons, especially if you've ever been one to have to go through a house full of things after the person who owned them has passed on. Here's The Glass Christmas from Andy Offit Irwin here on the Appleseed Tellers and Stories. 
Uh, my Aunt Marguerite's 85 years old, just graduated from medical school, applied applause. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, uh, uh, she got a phone call. Her, uh, her first cousin's um, husband passed away back in September. Um, and she was at that perfect spot where this is a member of her family. She loves the people who are grieving, but she is herself not one of the bereaved. That means she had responsibilities. And it is that, that responsibility we take on when we have loved ones who have lost loved ones, that we're the ones who call and say, is there anything I can do? We're the ones who, who bring over food. Those are the ones that go and do airport shuttle rides and bring flowers and take care of kids and all that sort of thing. And she did that part. And then it came time for a... It came time to clean out some old stuff. There's a place called the Pack House that the family collectively owns. It's at the old, old family farm. The old family farmhouse is gone. The Pack House was the freestanding garage that went with that house back in the early 20th century when people built houses and they built garages. They kept the garage separate from the house because the carriage house had been separate from the house and the stables and the barns had been separate from the house and people knew that those Model Ts with gasoline would explode spontaneously. And <laughs> so those things were separate from the house, just like early kitchens were separate from the house. And The house was gone. The house was abandoned and then teenagers went into the house and, and broke in and uh, <laughs> did stuff they shouldn't have done and, um, and they finally had to tear it down for, because of liability. You know, people would have said, you are liable to have caused some kids to go bad. And... Uh, <laughs> And, um, but the pack house is still there, and it's sort of the, the family attic. Everybody has stuff there, and, and the Saturday after Thanksgiving, Marguerite got the phone call that they were going to clean out the pack house. Would she come over? She could identify some of the stuff, being the oldest person who could still drive. Um, <laughs> so she arrived later than everybody else, and there were lots of extended family people hanging out outside, and inside were six folks who were uh, cleaning stuff out of the pack house, and, and, and she walked in, and she said hello, and she she hugged people and, and she saw that, that some people were starting to claim things and then there were conversations just, yeah, she wasn't joining the conversations but she heard people saying stuff like, well, this was promised to me. I was hoping to get that. There's going to be an estate sale. She looked in the corner and there was a little boy. She recognized him. He was the grandson, or the great-grandson, actually, of her cousin and, and her cousin's deceased husband. And she said hello to him, and he nodded. And he was sitting on an old trunk by himself. He was playing with um, a bolt and uh, a, a, a nut and a washer on it, and he was just jiggling it around. It was the only thing he was allowed to play with in there because everything else was so very valuable. They're antiques. We need to have these appraised. Those words were being used, and Marguerite was already bored with it, so she went and sat next to this little boy who was very shy. She said, hello. He's a very polite little boy. He said, hello, ma'am. How old are you? Well, she guessed that he was six years old, but she was smart enough not to guess out loud. He said, I'm six years old. Six years old. Do you remember me? No, ma'am. I remember you. I remember you when you were three years old. Oh. 
I am your great, great, great cousin. He opened up a little bit. I've never heard of a great, great, great cousin. Oh, they're very rare. I haven't seen you since you were three years old. Oh. Now, you know what I'm supposed to say now, don't you? Now that you're six years old. No, ma'am. I'm supposed to say, oh, you've gotten so big. I can't believe how big you've gotten. That's what I'm supposed to say. I might lose my grown-up license if I don't say that. <laughs> oh, you've gotten so big. He laughed. That's what they say, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. They say stuff like that. Then they say that, oh, I can't believe it. That's weird, isn't it? Because if I saw you three years ago when you were three years old and I saw you today and you're still three years old, that'd be crazy. <laughs> that made him laugh. And they became friends just like that, those great, great, great cousins from each other. She, she goofed with him a little bit. She looked at him. Marguerite knew the mother of this child as probably one of the most uptight people to have ever come into the family. A woman who was uh, worried about decorum so much that she worried about decorum more than she worried about how much people were getting along. Someone who worshipped Emily Post's Blue Book of Social Usage, <laughs> who had a copy of it on the coffee table in the formal living room. Somebody younger than that, too. Somebody who was, should have been born in the 20s, but was actually born in the 70s. Marguerite got up. She's 85 years old. She got up from that low trunk, because um, not because she wanted to leave the little boy, but if, you know, if you're 85 and you're down really low, you don't get up. Eventually, you won't be able to. <laughs> she went over to see where people were sorting through things and there was a little pile of oh this is valuable this is valuable I don't know whose this was Aunt Marguerite do you know whose this was and she could usually name where some things came from some things have been around a long time and she actually does not know who originally owned it I am seventh generation in my town that's why my head is so small <laughs> Marguerite's been around as well and and, and she, she went into her corner of the pack house and she pulled out my Uncle Charles's, her long deceased husband's, box of childhood stuff that he always kept. And when you're 85 years old and you're keeping stuff in a pack house, there's no reason to keep it. It was in a wooden old Carling Black Label case. Everybody who join me. Mabel, black lame. Yeah, you're dating yourselves. <laughs> and that's a felony in Georgia. <laughs> that was uncalled <laughs> She brought it over to the little boy and she said, let's see what kind of stuff this is in. This belonged to my husband. He's no longer with us. And this is his box of stuff from when he was a child and some other things we collected. Most of it has no use whatsoever. She pulled out an old fountain pen that she knew was her husband's grandfather's fountain pen. The nib was broken. It was not worth anything particularly. Have you ever seen a pen like this? That nib doesn't work, but it's probably gold. You can have that. 
a treasure. He said, thank you. As soon as she gave the boy something, everybody looked <laughs> to see what was happening. And then she reached in, she found a couple of metal toy soldiers. If these aren't made of lead, they're painted with lead. Don't put that in your mouth. <laughs> she reached in and she pulled out a Barlow pocket knife. And she said, oh, now this was probably given to my husband Charles when he was six years old, I bet. She reached into her pocket of her denim skirt. She pulled out a penny and she put the penny on top of the knife. She goes, here, you may have this. He said, why do you give me a penny with a knife? Because that's what people do. They give a little money with a knife when they give it to somebody. He said, why? She said, I don't know. <laughs> but people do, and I'm not going to go against tradition. <laughs> they were having the best time. She pulled out a couple other goofy little things. She let them have them. She goes, you can just have this whole box of stuff. I'm glad for you to have it, anything you want. Oh, look. And she saw one of the more important treasures, something that she had a little more trouble parting with, but she knew she would. It was a, it was a Coke bottle, an embossed, returnable, six-ounce Coke bottle from the days when six ounces of Coca-Cola was enough. The kind of Coke that Bloomberg dreams of. <laughs> That's a joke with a shelf life. You know that, right? Anyway. <laughs> but embossed under the words Coca-Cola in that familiar script was the patent date. And the patent date was December 25th, 1923. She said, December 25th. 1923, you know what day that is? He said, Christmas Day. That's right, it's Christmas Day. But that particular Christmas Day, December 25th, 1923, is the very day that your great, great, great cousin, Uncle Charles. Cousin, uncle, you heard me, don't contradict. <laughs> your great, great, great cousin, Uncle Charles, that was the day he was born. So we kept this because he calls it his own Coke bottle. He said Coca-Cola made these in his honor. She looked at the bottom and she said, this was made in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Handed him the Coke bottle. She explained, now this Coke bottle fell through Coke machines hundreds of times. It could have been dropped. It was used over and over and over by so many people. Nobody even knows how many people have used that Coke bottle, but it's made out of Georgia green glass like God meant for Coca-Colas to come in. <laughs> it's a high-quality glass. It hardly ever breaks. You got to drop it from an airplane onto the tarmac to break that high-quality <laughs> glass right there. That's a good bottle right there and as soon as recycling became fashionable they stopped making them <laughs> she got up once again she reached and she found an old toolbox wooden toolbox he said oh what's in these tools well that was set aside to the estate sale corner but nobody was stopping her because she was old and powerful <laughs> look what we have here there's a six sided hickory handled hammer. Do you have your own hammer? No, ma'am. Not a real one. Well, you do now here. 
looky here. And she found very early pair of vice grips invented in 1924. And she said, these are vice grips at Lock and Plies. She reached in, she found a little can of oil. She put, she put a, oil, a little oil on the nut there and she opened it and closed it and locked it. Stick out your finger, I'll show you how it works. <laughs> no, you are smart. Now these are real vice grips. Now they make some, they make some cheap lock and pliers. They're cheap and they're no good. These are high quality, they don't break. And this was made in a town uh, in Nebraska. Your, your great, great, great cousin, Uncle Charles and I, we were traveling across the United States on our way to Colorado one time to go camping. And, and we stopped in the town where these were made and he said the town was named after him. That's DeWitt, Nebraska. He used to think he was funny. He said, thank you. She got up once again. She went through where they were selling stuff. They were gathering stuff for the estate sale. And she saw a sphere. And she picked it up. And she pulled out the bandana that she had in the back of her skirt, which she always had when she had to go into the pack house. And she realized it was made of glass. And when nobody was looking, she spat on it. She cleaned it off, and it was a snow globe. It was beautiful, made of lead and glass, a beautiful old snow globe. And it had a manger scene on the inside. She sat down next to the boy. She said, look at this. This is a beautiful old thing. And it had Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus on the hay. Everything was there, wise men, shepherds. The detail was amazing, and the boy took it from her when she handed it to him, and he looked at it closely without having to put on reading glasses. <laughs> he shook it again and saw the snow swirl. Immediately, he hummed away in the manger. And together they sang, No grip for a bit. The little Lord Jesus. And they sang together. When he left the pack house with his treasures that no one could tell him that he couldn't keep except the knife disappeared. <laughs> he looked at that snow globe in the, in the privacy of his room and he knew that is what it really looked like when Jesus was born. He knew the song, Silent Night. He could name those buildings behind the manger. One of them's called a virgin. <laughs> Round yon virgin. Mother and child. Well, it came to pass that it was time to have Christmas dinner at the boy's house. The mother had sent Marguerite a really nice formal invitation, the kind of formal invitation that wastes a lot of paper because there's an envelope inside an envelope. What's the point? <laughs> but she recognized that and she opened it up. It had the little sheet of tissue paper that she'd throw away a letter or put a grocery list on it. And it was really engraved. It wasn't the fake, you know, kind of plastic sprayed on engraving. It was really engraved, cordially invited, the honor of your presence, Christmas dinner at their home. And so she went. She, um, she, she bought a bottle of wine from the top shelf at the Kroger. That's how she judges wine. <laughs> 
And she, she, she came over, she rang the doorbell, and, and the boy answered the door, and he was in a blue blazer. He looked great. He was in a blue blazer. He was in khaki pants. He was in bass, penny lovers, expensive shoes for a kid to outgrow. She could tell he had tied his own tie because she could tell the back end of the tie was stuffed into his shirt because every little boy who has ever tied a tie, the back part is a lot longer than the front part. But that's how you handle that, so the tie touches the tip of the buckle. She says, oh, you look so handsome. Thank you, ma'am. It's good to see you, great cousin, 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 Aunt Marguerite. <laughs> he knew he got it wrong, but they both did. Because I did. Anyway. She went and hugged and said howdy. She greeted family that she wanted to be with. She saw some of the family that she was kind of averting their eyes because she had sent them her um, children's homemade ornaments. And <laughs> and then she saw the table and she saw her, her place card at the table and she saw the boy's place card at the table and they were not close to each other. So, you know, she moved some around. <laughs> She moved the boy's place card so she would be sitting next to the boy. And then the mother saw that something had happened, so the boy's mother had moved the place card on the other side of the boy. So the boy was between Marguerite and his mother, and dinner was served. It was four courses. It was wonderful. It was very formal. She said, you just take the forks from the outside and work your way in. Follow my lead. <laughs> And it was a lovely, lovely supper. It was a lovely dinner that they were having together. And eventually dessert came. It was mincemeat pie with melted cheese on top. Oh, I love mincemeat pie. Aunt Marguerite reached for her fork above the plate. The boy followed her lead. And the metal button of his blazer mysteriously chinked on the very expensive goblet that held his milk when everybody else had received coffee. And somehow, in the freakish way that it rocked, it rocked once and went upright, but when it went upright, it cracked, and when it cracked, it broke, and milk poured out onto his lap over his place setting, and the mother jumped up immediately, and Marguerite jumped up as quickly as she could. And the mother said, I'll take care of this, and Marguerite said, no, I'll take care of this, I insist. Well, once you say, I insist, Emily Post would not approve if you did not go along with it. So the mother had to defer to Marguerite, who rushed the boy into his room, sat him down on a chair next to his bed, went into the bathroom, put uh, water on half of a whole towel, nice, one of the nice Christmas towels came, started dabbing him off. He was weeping, not sobbing, but he was embarrassed. He had never been more embarrassed in his life, and he was six years old, and that counts. She said, I'm so, you all right, don't you worry. That was an accident, an accident's happening. You've been doing such a good job. The little boy knew that he had a special relationship with his great, great, great cousin, Aunt Marguerite. So he said, glass is stupid. No, it's not, glass isn't stupid. Yes, it is, glass is stupid. It is not stupid. Yes, ma'am, it is. She walked over to his dresser and picked up his snow globe and came back with it. Now, this isn't stupid. He said, yes, it is. Why are you saying this is stupid? Well, at, at church, at Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher told us to bring something that means a lot to us 
that represents the real meaning of Christmas? Yes. And I brought my snow globe? Yes. And I showed it to Mrs. Lida, my Sunday school teacher? Yes. And I swirled it for her so she could see the snow? Yes. And she said, oh, that's lovely. But there is no snow in Bethlehem. The boy's Sunday school teacher said that to him. Marguerite had the presence of mind not to say that she was stupid. <laughs> but we all know that she was. <laughs> and she said, no, glass is not stupid. And this snow globe is certainly not stupid. Let me show you something. And she got up. And she went into the dining room and she got her wine glass and she said, watch this. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard desire water like a stone snow had fallen snow on snow snow on snow in the bleak midwinter beautiful Christmas song performed by Andy Offit Irwin and Kim Whitecamp at the tail end of a story called The Glass 
Christmas, one of Andy Offutt Irwin's Aunt Marguerite stories. What a pleasure to be with you today and to share that tale from Andy Offutt Irwin as well as the children's Christmas play from Donald Davis and at the top of the hour, a summertime story, Doing the Dishes by Catherine Conant. Thanks for joining us for this hour of stories for you and your family to enjoy. And we hope you join us for the next hour. You can find us on the web at www.byuradio.org slash Appleseed. That's where you'll find an archive of all of the episodes of The Appleseed. Hundreds of episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. The program is a production of BYU Radio. Assistant producers for The Appleseed include Jenny Goldsberry, Valerie Garofalo, Christina Bolaños, and Daniel Mesta. And of course, our sound engineer is Marin Del Rio. Thank you.